Namotasa Bhagavato Rahato Sama Sambutasa Namotasa Bhagavato Rahato Sama Sambutasa Namotasa Bhagavato Rahato Sama Sambutasa Udang Dhammang Sangang Namasami So it's a continuous ceremony, and these happen, they've happened every year, they're here for over 20 years, and uh, it's rather wonderful because we can't, the, the Sangha can't actually organize or arrange it, so there's no guarantee it's going to happen, but it happens every year because somebody or a group of people decide they'd like to do that, and often... The way that it works is, you know, sometimes a year or two in advance even, people ask if they'll have the opportunity to do so. So and then, it, so it operates on that level. You go to one continue, you think, well, that was really good. I'd like to do that. I'd like to help that happen. And then sometime later you get a chance to offer, to at least lead a katina on your own. And in these... Uh, the nature of a katina is such that it's an occasion that's considered extremely um, meritorious, extremely good, in the, because it brings so many people together, brings so many people together uh, around doing what they can. You know, somebody, every year, one group always makes coffee here. Every year they come and make coffee and tea in the workshop, and they've done that for decades. <laughs> So that's their offering, that's what they do, that's what they like to do. Other people come and help with the car park. People come and offer rice or cloth or soap powder, pretty ordinary things. But everybody gets a chance to feel they can, they can offer something. And there's an accumulative effect, a whole accumulation when everybody, lots of people just start to catch on to this, this, this quality, this feeling of the joy of generosity. And really, not to have to worry about how much and who gave most, but it doesn't really. It's all kind of anonymous, really. So you just put your, even if you just bring your smile at <laughs> something. <laughs> you know, you don't have to give anything apart from just a sense of willingness and and the effort to get here, and that's great. Cause you can you can then participate in the same way. Uh, so this is a really lovely thing because. You know, where, where do occasions like this happen? Outside of places, Buddhist monasteries, or places like it, which just dedicated for that. And what do you get? You know, you get out of it the sense of trust, harmony, meeting friends, a kind of thrill runs through the heart, through the system, you feel happy and uplifted. Uh, and it, it just, all it took was just... <laughs> open up a little bit, relax a little bit and, and spend an afternoon uh, just uh, in this way and this has been going on for millennia literally in different countries, it still does so something about uh, uh, any tradition, any ceremony that builds up a, into a traditional form 
that carries a huge amount of momentum with it. It's like it's got an accumulative effect. Just like when you, you polish a piece of wood, you put the first coat of wax on, it comes out. It's okay. The more and more times you put wax on it and polish it, the deeper the glow and the deeper the shine gets. It's rather like that with, uh, with traditions. Starts off, it's just a thing that somebody does. But then over the, when, you've been doing, when people have been doing this for thousands of years, it's got a very deep shine to it because it, it, it recalls every other act of generosity. It recalls every other act of generosity that anyone has done. It's like, it's, it's like you're hitting the same note and it's this sense of this is what human beings do. This is what human beings can do. Uh, one of our fundamental um, recollections uh, is, to, is to recollect the goodness of the human being rather than the wickedness, the evilness, the lyingness, the deceitfulness that human beings often see. You see recollected in the newspapers here we rec- try to recollect the goodness of the human being and it's, um, you know, it's very simple. It's a sense in which each human being can see beyond themselves, see a little bit beyond themselves. They can see maybe as far as their children. They think, oh, my children too, they care. I care for them. They see for their relatives, their father, their mother. And it, then some people can see a lot further than that. It's just how big you can get that sense of seeing to others as to myself. You're the same as me. There's a we sense. And that, that's the basic quality of a human being. And everyone has it. Uh, mine is no better than yours. Yours is no better than mine. It's the same thing. Some people don't go there very often. That's the problem. <laughs> they don't use it very much. Uh, or they've lost touch with it. But it's, it's always there. You know, Everybody can do this. And so this is an occasion where we, we, when we say anamodana, it means to means literally to f- rejoice, to feel happy, to celebrate this quality that everybody has. Yeah. And so it's it's very touching because, you know, I've certainly over my time here, I've seen children come to the monastery, little tots, and then you suddenly see them as. As, as young girls or young boys then you see them as teenagers then you see them carrying babies of their own <laughs> you know, it's like you see a whole progression of people who have grown up in this, in this process you know, who've seen the monastery and the sign of the renunciate the nun or the monk who's, who's let go, who's renounced things they've seen that sign and they've, they've respected it you know, so they've kept, that, that's embedded they carry that with them, the sign of respect for something that's about letting go and up being open and being um, vulnerable. And uh, <clears throat> the sign of renunciation is, it's like, it's the catalyst for the sign of generosity. The two go together, like the sun and the moon, you know, or like uh, uh, you know, fish and water generosity helps renunciation renunciation inspires generosity the two fit together you don't want to you, it's difficult to be generous to people who've, who can got lots of money and can go out and buy whatever they want and are going to keep it for themselves <laughs> for people who, who who've renounced that and have a place where people can share 
then that tends to catalyze and encourage the quality of generosity. This is why the Sangha, I'm not saying any of us in particular, but the Sangha in general, as a, as a general thing, is that called the, the great occasion. It's a great occasion for merit. It's a great occasion for generosity because the renunciant form inspires that sense of trust, that sense of, of generosity. It helps us to go more often to that place in ourselves where we feel, we feel rich, we feel grand, we feel loving, we feel radiant. And so the two do go together. Renunciation, of course, it sounds kind of painful, <laughs> but it's actually a very useful thing to do to be able to do this I was talking to somebody and uh, <clears throat> you know just going through a divorce so they're, they're, they're you know they're, they're suddenly where they had a house with a husband in it and then uh, children and a whole family now she's on her own so there's all this belongings in the house that she doesn't actually need and so I said well it's a good t- chance to really just clear out, you know, just go back to basics, clear out what you don't need and start again, you know, just have enjoy the sense of space. You're saying, well, it's kind of difficult to let go of this, you know, difficult to let go of these things when you're going through that. And I said, yeah, I know what you mean. It's difficult for everyone. But what you do, what you do is you create one room or maybe a space in one room you, you you put you take everything out of that and you keep you don't get rid of anything you just put everything in another room so you still got it if you need it <laughs> in the back room and you go and sit in the front room with nothing much in it and you think oh oh I really need a chair okay so you go to the back room bring a chair in okay oh, I really need a table okay you go to the back room put a table in that's better now. And then, and then always when it's like that first of all whenever you clear out first of all it feels really uncomfortable it's, you, you feel because you're so hooked up to all the, the things that you, you, they're not there you feel kind of naked like you haven't got enough clothes on so, so when you first then you have to sit there and first of all let, try to till you get the sense of feeling comfortable feeling comfortable with that if you can't feel really can't feel comfortable with that then look at what you actually need you think well I need a vase of flowers okay vase of flowers <coughs> and so you start to actually bring in just what you need to make yourself feel comfortable and okay and then you so you still got all the stuff in the back room you leave it there and you live in your front room with your table and chair vase of flowers after all you maybe bring a book in or a table lamp or something like that and after a while you realise, you know, all that stuff, I haven't touched it for over a year now. Maybe I'll move it into the shed in the back garden. <laughs> <laughs> so it's getting a little bit further away. <laughs> yeah. And then after two years, you, you know, eventually it starts to decay by itself. <laughs> you realise after you know a little while you really don't need that at all and uh, yeah. uh, and then you but it's not just about not having things it's about enjoying 
the sense of quietness and, and uh, ease that comes when your mind isn't uh, continually holding on to all these, these things. And I have the same sort of difficulties because um, when I, I was a uh, uh, boy, then it was a time after the war, the Second World War in, in England, so the food, all the food was rationed. So you, you couldn't, you'd only get so much butter a week and so much sugar a week. And so you have to be very, very careful. It's really encouraged to not waste a single bean or a pea. You know, so you had to, mother would stand behind you, make sure you ate every last pea, bean, you know, on the plate. Even matchsticks, you light a matchstick and then you light the gas and you blow the matchstick out and you save the matchstick because one half of it is still, still burnable. So you can use the matchstick two or three times to carry flames around on. So I still had this habit and, uh, you know, in my cootie, I'd have boxes of half-burnt matches because I couldn't bear to throw a ha- only a matchstick that only the head had been burnt off. You know, and broken things. And things, the phrase was always, well, it might come in handy <laughs> later on, like, you know, uh, sort of a half-broken clock or a, a toy rabbit with one ear or something like that. It might come in handy later on. You know. And I had one a little clock somebody gave me and it kept breaking down. It broke down two times, three times and they took it to repairers and they looked at it and tried to fix it and they'd bring it back again. It went for a little while and it broke down. Eventually I had to give it to a, to a monk and said, don't just, if this doesn't work, don't tell me about it. <laughs> just, he said he'd throw it in the middle of Hammer, throw it into Hammer Pond. <laughs> Because I thought, well, somebody gave me that clock, you know, it's, it's, it's got sentimental value. So a, a lot of that uh, quality kind of starts to um, gather around the objects in their lives, this quality of you know, my uncle gave me this, or my cousin gave me that, or my, you know, this belongs, this reminds me of this or that and the other, and these objects carry that quality. Now the idea is when you develop renunciation, you keep that quality but you don't put it in the object. You don't put it in the clock. You don't put the feeling, the good feeling of who gave this to you in the clock or you don't put it in the picture. You just put it in your heart and then you start to breathe it out into the space around you. So instead of having it in various bits and pieces, you bring all the, 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 the qualities of the people who have given things to you or the good memories and you bring them into your heart and you can stay more constantly in your heart because your mind isn't going out all the time onto all the bits and pieces that you're living with. So the renunciation actually helps you to distill, to clarify, to purify, to bring the goodness of your life back into your heart rather than to have it going out onto external objects. It doesn't mean getting rid of the happiness, it means bringing the happiness home, (laughs) bringing it back in. because of course the truth of the matter is that everything we have leaves us even uh, people leave us our belongings leave us even our bodies leave us so rather than keep investing them with uh, the good feeling we keep the good feeling in our hearts and then we can 
share that uh, with everyone you know, because this is the nature of the human heart it's a sharing sense mm-hmm. and the more you share it the bigger it gets it's like a the organ of the heart you might say the organ of the spiritual heart is the the, the more you use it then the bigger it gets the bigger it gets the more powerful it gets the more powerful it gets the more happy it gets the more happy it gets the more often you want to use it <laughs> so it keeps developing like that yeah. so this is a so renunciation just helps you to keep coming back into that and learn, and so that and of course the the other vital piece for our for dhamma practice of course is to be able to meditate and to meditate can mean many things uh, but essentially it means just that ability to sustain your attention not so much on things but on the the feelings in the heart the moods the senses the understanding that rests that you, you in yourself so it can have various qualities to it sometimes it feels like brightness or like spaciousness or like boundlessness or like warmth and you, when you meditate you keep coming back into this this quality and it helps to give you a place to stand that is much more secure than everything else that has to be propped up yeah. and so you know then you look at uh, this possibility and to be reminded of this possibility because of course this is what you know why this teaching uh, has been so precious and so so well used and so well respected over the years you know is because this is actually what everyone wants but they don't know how to find it we're always trying to find that sense of the the rich the beautiful, the good, the true and uh, most people in the world tend to be looking for it in the wrong place looking for it where, you, where it can't be found looking for it in uh, sense pleasures looking for it in status looking for it in terms of renown or fame looking for it in terms of social position mm-hmm. And so this is very precarious because suddenly it can just flip right over. As you're witnessing the other week, you know, these the financial system, they just talk about billions. You know, nobody even talks in measly old millions anymore. <laughs> millions not even worth thinking about <laughs> in terms of billions. And uh, suddenly, you know, something loses 200 billion yeah, it's like one day it was top of the top of the world, and the next day it's completely fallen apart. You know, these are the the kind of great bastions and pillars of our establishment, just built on fantasy, built on air. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. and that, that's what you know. You, as lay people, you've got to really get a feeling for renunciation. Not, big, not from some kind of sense of asceticism, but it's absolutely essential to get that spirit of it so that you don't get seduced or caught by all the, the currents of the world. 
as a as a monk or a nun, you've got a lot more. It's a lot easier to practice renunciation because you've got the vinya, you know, the training rules, which actually prevent you from earning money or buying things, and you have this uh, tremendous um, advantage as a lay, as a as a monk or a nun in being given, being given the support. So you have to struggle a bit with your own desires and passions and so forth, but essentially you, you've got what you need. And I, I saw that when I first came to a monastery, like I'd been, I'd never done any meditation. And I was in Thailand, and then I found a place where they were teaching meditation. So I thought, well, that's, I'll try that. I did the meditation. I thought, well, that's good. I'll do some more of that. I'll go to to a monastery because that will be quieter. So I went to the monastery and I stayed there for about a week in this monastery and I started to put two and two together. Wait a minute, here I've got a place to live and they're bringing me food every day and I've got clothes. I don't need to buy anything. I've cracked it, you know. I mean, it's not it's not five star, but it's <laughs> it's enough. And I realised, you know, my father had been working since he was fourteen. He left school and he was fourteen, going to work. He was then he's sixty four. He worked from fourteen till he was sixty four. Worked solid <laughs> to get these four requisites, and he's still having to struggle to keep it going, struggle to keep it going. And he'd, he'd say, oh, it gives me so many headaches, it gives me so much trouble, this, trying to keep this whole thing going, worrying about the taxes, worrying about the bills, worrying about this, that and the other. And I thought, hmm. And then his father died from overwork, and his father before him died of overwork, and the, within six months my father died from overwork. And I thought... I get the message. <laughs> what do you want to do, you know? <laughs> it's not five star, but it's okay. And then you've got the rest of the time, you can really focus on cultivating the, the heart. Now, it's not that, you know, nobody... It's the same. My, my mind is the same as everybody else's. Same possibilities, same kind of energies, the same kind of interests as everyone else has. You know, wants to be happy, um, and then, you know, so it's not as if somebody's special; only special people do it. But anybody can practice it, practice it a little bit, because the, you know, you see, what actually do you need in your life? You need these requisites: food, shelter, um, clothes, medicines. You need that. You need, it's good to have friends, really important to have friends. And the rest of it, it's important to feel good in yourself and to be able to do something that you feel is worthwhile. That's really it. That's what happiness means, is you've got enough for yourself, you've got people you feel good about, and you've got something worthwhile doing that you feel happy with. So then once you actually understand that particular piece, then you can start to really examine what the messages are that uh, the world is giving you. you 
you know, about uh, what's going to make you feel good. So every time I come to an airport, I have to go to, I think it's Gatwick Airport, and when you, when you come through the airport, you have to go through this huge, huge shopping mall to get to the gates. And you go through this shopping mall, it's like running the gauntlet. There's these tentacles coming out of the walls. <laughs> you know, and they're incredibly powerful, like there's whiskey, and it looks so good. You know, there's this, generally there's this really well-dressed man. It's a sunset on a tropical island. And he's got a glass of whiskey in his hand. There's some really nice-looking woman with him with pearls on a pearl necklace on. And this glass of whiskey in his hand. And you think, wow, that looks so good, this glass of whiskey. And you walk along, and there's somebody, there's perfumes, there's special sunglasses. Everybody wearing these things looks incredibly elegant and uh, handsome. Um, you know, and then they're never they're never kind of uh, over fifty. They're always kind of like per- permanently twenty five <laughs> years old at most. And it's it's presented. And there's one place where you go along where they have these couple of cars, like something like a Bentley or a Maserati, or a really f- flash car. And you walk along, and this thing is just glowing with desirability. And <laughs> it's got beautiful, sleek, sleek lines and rich colours, and you know, and it looks like it's gonna. It looks like you know, it's just it's so so fast in its look. It's got beautiful streamlining. And I'm walking along there. Wow, that's a nice-looking car. <laughs> and a salesperson said, "Do you want to buy it?" <laughs> and, I, and I said, I, "I said, sorry, I didn't bring my checkbook with me." <laughs> Thank goodness, sir. <laughs> you know, so it's it's. I can understand the pulls of it because actually I've I've got no possibility <laughs> buying any of these things. I d- I don't really want any of them on one level, but you can still feel on a kind of very on a basic level just the the pull of what represents comfort, um, success, attractiveness, satisfaction. And you realize you've bought this message a hundred times. <laughs> and it hasn't happened yet. <laughs> it happened for like, like three minutes when you drove the car at the showroom. <laughs> it happened for 20 seconds. It happened for half an hour. You know, and then it sort of went to... Broke down, changed, got dirty, broke, and knew a better one came along, and suddenly it had gone. You know, and so the message is like that, isn't it? Yeah. Or the messages that tell you how you can save money by spending it. You know, buy now; it's only fifty pounds. So buy it now, rather than don't buy it at all. <laughs> you know, so it's reduced from 100 pounds to 50 pounds, so you can save 50 pounds by buying it. You can save 100 pounds by not buying it. <laughs> so these are really important things to just um, to, to learn, because you learn a lot about what the mind gets gets drawn to 
you know, how susceptible we all are. This is because you know, the mind gets pulled out for the search for comfort, uh, happiness, attractiveness, speed, ease, joyfulness, whatever it is. You know, joyfulness is a glass of vermouth. Joyfulness is, uh, you know, a new dress. Is it? Wonder, you know, isn't it something in here? You took these, you took all these glasses and pieces of metal and pieces of cloth and put them on the floor. Would they be joyful? No, they're just things, aren't they? Would they be comfortable? No, they're just things. Yeah. We give them our joy, our comfort, our happiness, and we think they're giving it to us. <laughs> so when we, when you, the important thing is you're turning the mind around. The, actually the real the source of it all is in your own own heart and the, the, the difficulty is learning how to access that how to bring that forth having to have an occasion to really understand see that in yourself not that you don't have it but we've forgotten how to go there it's like when you got used to walking with a stick you've, you've forgotten you, you think oh, I can't let go of this stick you know but you've walked better without a stick. You've got used to leaning on this thing. And you think, oh, I can get along, I can get along. I can, you know. So it's learning how, and when you put the stick away, first of all, you're unbalanced. You don't feel so good. You know, you feel a bit unsteady because you've got used to leaning on it. And then there's that unsteady patch where you just have to s- slow down, be quiet, meditate, hold the space, and start to feel allow that quality of strength to come back to yourself, come into yourself. This is kind of how, where the meditation is the important bit to the inner dwelling, to really open up and touch the place in us which starts to get filled and come alive through the acts of goodness Mm. and generosity and kindness. And a lot of the training is, is really in, in strengthening that. The Buddha said, when he trained people, he said, it's not like you um, training an elephant. Hmm. How do you train a wild elephant? So you have to get a tame elephant, and you get on the tame elephant, and you go into the jungle to where the wild elephant is, and the wild elephant sees the tame elephant, thinks, oh, the same sort of creature as I am. Okay, that's okay. And then you, you come. So then the wild elephant lets the tame elephant get alongside it. And then the, when the, the, the person who's sitting on the tame elephant then starts to stroke the wild elephant. Say, hello, you okay? Give it banana. You know, give it some bamboo to eat, some sugar cane to eat. Elephants love sugar cane. And some, ba- and some bananas. And the t- wild elephant starts to quieten down. And it starts to make friends with the tame elephant. And then you, you tie them together. They start to move together. And then you have the tame elephant, the wild elephant, and he's starting to lose some of his rough habits. And then the Buddha said, then you, you get him to, to stay still, to lie down, to sit up, to move around. And then you get it to um, um, allow someone to ride on it. And then you start to challenge it. You start to make it into something that can resist even uh, war, warfare. You take take the wild elephant; it becomes an elephant that uh, 
will stand still even when there's war and crashing and banging and people throwing spears at it. It resists it. Yeah. Then it's, a, it's become strong. And he says, this is, this, is the, what, this is the metaphor for the heart. The heart is like the wild elephant. It has enormous strength, enormous capacity, but it's out there rambling around in the jungle with no instruction. So you, you bring the tame elephant. So this is rather like coming to the monastery or having spiritual friends or just even reading the scriptures and, and meeting people like that. You get in touch with those who are tamed. And you, they, you see, oh, it's the same as me. It's the same kind of person, really. They do the same kinds of things. They're not floating around on clouds. They walk and te- talk and eat, same as I do. So you start to you know, get that sense of confidence. And this is what this occasion is about. Coming to meet some elephants that may be a bit tamer than you are. <laughs> some are maybe a bit wilder than you are. <laughs> Uh, and then just sense of recognizing what we have in common, you know, you know, what we have in common. Is this, uh, and then the the, the uh, learning how to to stay with that quality and to to bring it. And the real challenge is bringing it into the world. Is where you get the things that jump at you, things that demand, things that cause you pressure, and still remaining steady in that quality of, of good-heartedness. This is the challenge. And uh, we do that in terms of uh, the ma- uh, heart and mind, also the way we act. <coughs> so then you have the, the path, right thought, right speech, right action, um, right, right mindfulness and so forth, <coughs> the Eightfold Path. And one way to really train yourself, if you really want to train yourself, is start to think of something that really annoys you a lot. And try to talk about that without expressing anger or blame. <laughs> think of someone who really, really gets your goat, who really winds you up, and try to talk about that person without using any harsh words, any bad language. <laughs> Or blaming them, you know. So, well, that's how you train. You don't train just by talking about, you know, things that are easy. You start to train yourself by going into the areas where you feel angry. It's not right. So and so, he does this. He never does that. And you think, and you try to train yourself. Can I refer to that without the mind going harsh, judgmental, blaming? Uh, you know, just just abiding in that. And this is really, this is where you, you turn the whole, the whole world turns around because then every situation becomes a place where you strengthen, you refuse to go into the negative, the cynical, the bitter, the critical, the grumbling, the blaming, the demanding, and you just refuse to go there. This is like the elephant that refuses to budge when it's attacked by weapons attacked by blame, by insult, by harsh language, he refuses to give ground. This is the really, the strong elephant, you know. The strong elephant isn't the one that, that when he's blamed, rushes and lashes back. That's a stupid elephant. Any old elephant can do that. (laughs) The strong elephant is the one when they're 
receiving the unpleasant words, unpleasant actions, unpleasant uh, thoughts, unpleasant feelings remain strong in their own goodness. Uh, so, and this is, you know, but you find that, and it's not a goodness that's imposed upon you, like you must be this way, you must be that way, you must be kind, you must be peaceful, you shouldn't raise your voice. It's not, it's not something imposed upon outside, it's something that you start to feel coming within you. And the Buddha always, when he taught, he always said the first step that everyone can make, that everyone understands, is generosity. He says, when you get generosity, that immediately, most immediately, gives you the sense of others as to myself. We reach out of ourselves. So the second step is morality. That's interesting, isn't it? Because he, he was very practical. He didn't say, you've got to be good, and you've got to be sober, and you've got to be wise. You know, first of all, you know, it's just like, just do what makes you feel good already. And then you'll start to get the sense of sharing and care for others. And because of that, you won't want to harm anyone. Because of that, you won't want to steal from anyone. Because of that, you won't want to say bad things about other people. Because you feel, you start to feel this is the, the heart growing stronger. And that elephant, which is what the heart becomes, feeling its own strength and refusing to to um, give way. So once you've developed sila, morality, virtue, that sense of, then you can start to develop what is difficult for people, which is renunciation. Which means, because I have this, because I'm already riding on an elephant, I don't need this. Because I'm riding on an elephant, I don't need a donkey. <laughs> I don't even need a fast car. <laughs> you know, I've already, I've already got the treasure. So uh, thank you very much. I don't. I'm not. I don't need that. So renunciation only comes really from generosity, morality. So once you've developed renunciation, you've seen the danger of losing yourself, of losing your own goodness in uh, worldly things, and how you can ter- you can gain and restore your own goodness through renunciation. He says then you're someone who really begins to who's capable of understanding the Four Noble Truths. It's like that. So the Four Noble Truths, of course, are the liberation. Because the once you've, you've practiced like that, generosity, morality, renunciation, you've already basically started to practice the Four Noble Truths. You've started to feel the sense of that in you which lets go, that, that in you which gets bigger and wider, that in you which doesn't cling to objects. So the Four Noble Truths essentially are about the wisdom of letting go and generosity, renunciation, morality are the most practical, immediate ways in which we can develop that. And then through that you begin to see the, the beauty of a heart that's abiding without attachment. The heart that's abiding without attachment. This means wherever you go, you're sitting in your your empty room. You're sitting in your space. It's not a blank space. It's just a space because it's empty. It means you can put whatever you like in it. It's not full up. Yeah, because it's innately empty. It means you could put 
anything could fit in there. You could have a hundred people could come in that space and they still wouldn't fill it because it's innately unfillable. It's innately empty. It's innately void of clinging. It doesn't matter how much goes into it, it doesn't stick. Because it doesn't stick, you don't have to fight to keep things out of it. You don't have to defend yourself because the space doesn't get contaminated or infected by the things of the world. And this really, that's the called the unsurpassed freedom that's possible for us. So the sense of silence or simplicity or emptiness is something that's not achieved through being in a place where, uh, you know, that's completely alone. It's, through, it's achieved, it's realized through the release from clinging. And uh, this is what this whole tradition's been about, is about, and we just keep finding places where, oh, that's a bit of furniture that I didn't need. What have we still got that for? <laughs> And as it gets closer, you start to look at bits of your identity and think, do I have to be that? No, I don't have to be that anymore. I've done being that. Finished, you know. <laughs> I've done being, you know, belonging to someone or having to prove myself as being something or little grudges I'm still hanging on to. I mean, we don't just fill our house with nice furniture we fill it with a load of old garbage a lot of the time (laughs) so you think what am I hanging on to this rotten piece of grudge for (laughs) you know you don't you don't need it anymore Uh, so that that then whatever you know because there really isn't any other way to find this sense of impeccable freedom and happiness than through that that practice, through the practice of letting go. This is why the Buddha taught it, and he said, this is all I'm teaching. You know, this is is essentially the only thing that that is about awakening, the only thing I can teach. And so, but then when you, if you cultivate that, the rest of the life, the rest of the world, whether you get sick, left alone, you know, liked one day and despised the next day, up and down, whatever the world wants to throw at you, it's just like another test for your elephant. (laughs) You know, and every time you come through a test, your elephant's got a bit stronger and a bit wiser and a bit more peaceful, you know. all the challenges, all the uh, assaults that life can bring to us actually just keep making us stronger and deeper. So I'll offer this for your reflection today.